Okay, uh, I have Dr. Michael Spiegel with me. Uh, Dr. Spiegel was one of my professors at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, the resident patristic expert, uh, and uh, one of the, I, I would say, impactful professors that I had when I was at seminary. So, uh, Dr. Spiegel, thanks for coming on the pod. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I um, I didn't know from my time in Dallas when I was there studying, I didn't know there was a place on earth hotter in the summer, um, but I somehow found it and I'm here now. <laughs> and so you can rest assured that there's someone in this conversation in a warmer place than Dallas, Texas in the middle of August than you. Not not, not like where we grew up in Minnesota, is it? No, no. We are both Minnesotans. <laughs> I love Minnesota. I miss Minnesota. Uh, I miss summer in Minnesota. I do not miss winter in Minnesota at, at all. Um, but I think I would actually maybe, okay, we're already starting off on the back foot, but would you rather take a Minnesota winter or Dallas summer? Uh, Dallas summer. I think I would too, but Dallas summers are really brutal. They can be brutal. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, I, I want to have a conversation around um, the patristics which is probably a new word for a lot of people in, I would say, American Protestant evangelical circles. Um, we don't hear people talk about patristics or the church fathers often. Um, I don't know how many sermons most people hear where the pastor quotes the patristics or one of the fathers. Um, you know, and so it's probably a new word. Uh, but I, why don't we, before we get into why I think this even matters, I'll just pitch it to you. When, when we start talking about patristics, the patristics, the, mm -hmm. the church fathers, the early church, that phrase is maybe kind of this catch all that some people are familiar with. Yeah. Uh, what do we mean? And um, where does that kind of fall? Sure. Yeah, I, you're right. I think a lot of people, they hear the term church fathers. It sounds very Catholic. It sounds very foreign to them, or they hear the word patristics. And if you haven't defined it, or if they haven't heard it before, it sounds like a, like a condition, you know, a skin condition. I have a bad <laughs> case of patristics and I, you know, can't stop scratching. It totally does. Like That's great. Right. It does kind of, I mean, it just sounds bad. Um, but patristics just comes from the, the Greek word pater for fathers and so patristic or the fathers and I, I'm commend you for not saying patristic fathers I think I could tell you are trying to avoid that desperately uh redundant but yeah the the period of the patristics or what we call the early church or the patristic era is really your post new testament period um basically going from about 50 because we have some writings outside the new testament that are that early ad 50 to about um just add another zero on it about 8500 so we're talking about about the first 500 years or so of the early church and the writings that are very formative um theologically it's time during which the the bible kind of became what it is today the old and new testaments and um our basics of orthodox theology developed during that time okay and um so i started to really think about this when i was in seminary taking one of your classes your class on ecclesiology in the church and we were walking through uh the creed and um we were 
you had a, a few lectures on uh, this confession that we make in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And, uh, and I was just having a conversation with somebody else about this. And one, I, can, I was like, yep, I can get that. Okay, we believe in one church. Holy, I have a category for that. That's not super difficult. Catholic, okay, I grew up in Minnesota, which means I grew up in Lutheran Catholic land. Yeah, right. We mean, right. So, but I've learned, I've learned the other meaning of the word Catholic that just means universal right. and whatnot. Okay, so I, I can understand one holy Catholic, but then there was this like thing on the end called apostolic, right? That in some circles, um, is used a lot kind of revival charismatic circles is kind mm -hmm. of used a lot, but never really defined. Uh, churches will call themselves apostolic. People will call themselves apostolic as this kind of adjective that again, doesn't really get defined. You get some people who still today will call themselves apostles. Uh, that's not super common, but it does happen. Uh, but then when in these lectures, you were talking about, well, no, no, this is, we are belonging to the church that has been passed down from Christ to the apostles and then through a succession that this is the apostolic church, that there is a, a passing, if it's a giant relay race, that we are carrying the same baton that's been passed down, starting with Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, to the 12 plus Paul, and and then they're forward um, through their own disciples, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to so on and so on. And um, I had no, I, I had no category for that um, because I think in, in a lot of the world that probably most Protestant American evangelicals grow up in church history starts in the 1500s with Martin Luther and John Calvin. Right. And it, that's just kind of like the beginning of it. It just, and, and everything before that, we just kind of sweep under the Catholic rug where everything was bad and corrupt and like, we've got it right after, after the reformation. And, um, but talk to us a little bit of like, why does it matter if we think about it as this relay race and we confess it in, in the creed, it's in the creed that we all confess to believe. Why does it, why is that a big deal that we understand kind of the beginning of this race, the beginning, the first few generations that held that baton and our importance of being connected to it still today? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I like how you ended it being connected. And I think I like to think of the Catholicity of the church and the apostolicity of the church uh, as two dimensions or two ways that we are connected to something bigger than ourselves. And I think you know, and especially uh, in my context in the Western um, evangelical church, it's that connection is really missing. The sense that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're not just uh, it's not just our little church family. It's we're part of a much broader extended family. And Catholicity relates to being connected to something bigger than ourselves globally uh, in all directions. Every uh, tongue, tribe, people, and nation. We're connected to them through our common faith. 
uh, and apostolicity is the is being connected to something historically going all the way back to the apostles. And I think of Second Timothy two two. You mentioned Timothy that um, Paul says the things you uh, heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he sets that that baton passing, and that baton is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so it it means then that our standard. Um, how we even know that we're receiving the right baton from the right person, uh, because there's a lot of noise out there. It's a lot of, a lot of people passing around a lot of things. Um, how do we know that what we're receiving is actually this faith? Well, you, you look, you have to look back and you look back at, um, the period when there were, were just a few runners, <laughs> so to speak, the, the apostles handing this down to that next generation. We have their writings. We can see the things that they emphasized, the things that they were, uh, willing to die for and and write whole books about. And so looking back, besides just looking at the Bible, which is also, by the way, part of that apostolic tradition, the apostles taking the writings of the prophets, explaining how they point to Christ, adding their inspired uh, authoritative writings to that collection and passing that down. That's why we even have a Bible. But they not only passed down those writings, they passed down certain traditions. Paul says, you know, the traditions you heard from us, you know, these um, keep hold, hold to these things. Second Thessalonians chapter two, don't be distracted by other things. So uh, what we do, what we do, how we properly understand scripture was passed down by those apostles to the disciples. So by looking at those early writings and, and the things that the church has always held, you have this, this phrase, we, we take greatest care to hold that, which has been believed everywhere, always and by all is sort of like this rule of thumb for what is this apostolic teaching that has been passed down from generation to generation? Um, we've been baptized into it from generation to generation. Uh, our ordinations by the previous generation have appointed, you know, this new generation now to ministry and we have to do the same. So thinking in terms of that, I like your image of the relay race. It's, it's quite appropriate. And it means that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. There's a long path people before us and there's a long path in front of us that we're responsible for grabbing this tradition, holding it firmly, promoting it in our generation, then passing it faithfully on to the next. How do you see, you, you used a, I think for a lot of people is a trigger word and that's tradition. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, Protestants, we, ha- we are the people of sola scriptura. We're the people of, the of the book right where the the bible i mean every church we believe we are bible believing churches and people and all of this kind of stuff and in many in many circles tradition really has become like a negative word it's become a pejorative um the traditions of men and we'll, we'll pull you know the i think the classic verse kind of trope verse for this is you know, when Jesus says that you heap the traditions of men on these people and and that just kind of wholesale gets equated to certain denominations or certain streams of like, look at their dead tradition and blah, 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 blah. And we have not those things, right? Because we are people of the spirit or the Bible or whatever. Um, But you point, you pointed, you use this word tradition and then you you connected actually our receiving the scripture to that tradition. 
which if we pause to think about is really kind of a kind of a big deal um, that in a in a real way the bible comes out of the church and the tradition of the church not the other way around the tradition doesn't come out of the bible like the tradition predates the actual formation mm -hmm. of what we would today call the the new, old and new testament um as as we have it anyway and um why do we need to I'm trying to think of how to phrase this i feel like we need to and you also said like we're kind of in in uh, the circles that we run in were a little disconnected historically often. And I think a lot of people feel that. I have a bunch of conversations with people who, by the time they hit their, who are about my age, usually by the time they hit their 30s, they start to, their life starts to slow down. It starts to normalize and they start to realize, hey, actually, I want something that has deep historical roots. I want something older than myself. I want something older than the college ministry who's trying to just like make it cool to get all the college students to come. Right. And it takes a few years of after school, getting a job, getting married, having kids for a lot of people and their life starts to slow down. And they, and then they realize, wait a second, if I'm going to make it for 40 or 50 years more in this, I actually want something that's old and ancient. Um, flesh out the word and what you mean when you say tradition, and then maybe we can go down a couple of different trails of what we mean by that and how, how we can maybe try and recover some of the, the good of that word and what that, and why that word and what it means is, is actually important to us. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting that we, we begin to start to appreciate the past and the history and a connection to the past right about the time we realize our parents weren't as stupid as we thought they were. You notice yeah, that? Right? It, it, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, which also maybe coincides maybe I do with, need to learn something. Which is also coincides with when we become parents. You know, we become parents right, and we realize, yeah. oh wait, I'm the idiot. My parents are not the idiots. Yeah. And they actually knew what they were talking about all along. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and I, I think look forward same, for it's a good analogy when I get to say that to my kids. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And, and it's a good analogy for what, what we're supposed to be doing, passing this faith on to the next generation. And we think, oh, my goodness, how was how, how this po positively or negatively passed down to me? So this whole tradition is really should be regarded as a neutral term. It could be used, could be negative, could be positive, could be kind of in between. It just means passing down the language of tradition. Um, in the in Greek paradosis or passing down, uh, passing along, um, is used all over the New Testament. Paul uses it in First Corinthians fifteen. I, I delivered to you. That's I traditioned in the verb form to you that which I also received by tradition is the is the concept that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he um, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. All of this this thing that just the sharing the gospel that was shared to us. With someone else is is passing on the tradition and so um baptizing somebody you're you were baptized you're baptizing the next generation that's tradition uh the scriptures as you said so uh, we receive those um it's kind of good to know where did these things come from and going you can trace it all the way back to the you know that fairly early by the second century you know by the year 200 or so we had a, a 
pretty functional, stable cannon and a finalized cannon within a hundred years. Um, and, and from that point forward, we're being we're receiving this from the past and passing it down, as well as proper ways to, to understand it, the big picture of scripture, um, creeds, um, to bring up another maybe trigger word, yeah, um, there you go. credo just means I believe, you know, and it just means I believe, credo, and, and it's the confession of faith that we make at baptism in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. So, yeah, I think people just need to kind of get over with it, maybe stand in a dark room and just say the word tradition, tradition, tradition over and over until it doesn't offend them anymore, because it's a good term. And uh, now there is bad tradition, right? We, we talked earlier about receiving the wrong baton. If you're you know, running in a crowd of runners and some of them are just not really in the same race that we're in, but they're false teachers or something, you want to make sure that you're not reaching over and grabbing the wrong, wrong baton. And uh, that can be very damaging. So this is why looking back is really important. You need to look and see you know, who, you know, what color shirt is our team? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. is it the yellow one or the orange one? It looks very similar in the throws of the of the race you want to make sure you're receiving from the right right team and so i think tradition is can be positive can be negative it can be neutral just depends on on what it is and what we're talking about now would you say because in i think in some people's minds the the circle of tradition and the circle of scripture are two separate things that they exist distinct from one another. And this is where I think some people have in their minds, they anyway, have issues with, they say, well, Hey, we're not supposed to believe in the, the, just the traditions of men. We're supposed to just believe in the Bible. So why do we need all of these traditions? Why sure. can't we just, just have the Bible? Um, and so that would so get away with, with all of the traditions and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what, if, if the tradition is is, I mean, you just quoted one, 1 Corinthians 15. I tradition to you what was traditioned to me, or Timothy to, uh, or Paul to Timothy, mm -hmm. Paul to Titus yeah. when he leaves him on Crete um, and tells him to go appoint elders so that they can go and appoint elders and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. How do those, how do those circles overlap? Um, and what are maybe some of the traditions? Um, are there, are there some traditions that you think that the church ought to hold when you take a look back, just get your own personal mm -hmm. take on it, that maybe are not explicitly in scripture or all of the details are not explicitly in scripture, but have been part of mm -hmm. the tradition. And you think, Hey, actually, I think, I think we should still do it this way. Maybe not because I can point to exact chapter and verse, but I can point to a, a long running deep-rooted tradition in this practice is that sure is that cool? yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense um now i'm gonna kind of back up a little bit and and talk about what you were you talking about the overlap yeah, yeah, and yeah. um where does scripture overlap with this and i think that that's important so you mentioned earlier it's absolutely right the there was a there was a gospel there was a church there was a basic um, theology being passed down, being preached and taught, and people are being baptized into a basic confession of faith before any single letter of the New Testament was written. So the uh, the church precedes that. Now, of course, of course, they have the Old Testament, but that's being understood and interpreted as being fulfilled in Christ. So 
they're going around and preaching and teaching these things. And then as the writings of the New Testament are, are coming about, they are coming about in a community of faith, the, the, the church community that already believes certain things. Um, they may not have all of the details worked out on some things, but they basically believe in what, what I like to call the Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creation, fall, redemption story that's centered on Christ's person and work in his first and second coming. And that's what they're baptized into. That's what they're taught. So when they get these letters from Paul or these gospels, uh, these are not written in a vacuum and they're not read in a vacuum. They're already being read in light of what the apostles themselves or the church planters working with the apostles had taught them. So the extrapolating from that, the, the way the Bible was actually meant to be read from the very first writing of the New Testament books, it was meant to be read in light of this basic confession of faith, the basic Christian faith. And this is what we mean by faith seeking understanding. We have this basic content of faith, and then we try to understand it better and work out some of the details through scripture. So in one sense, that tradition of passing down the Trinitarian faith along with scripture, so we have the big picture of how we're supposed to understand it, that's been the, that way from day one. And now listen, though, there's nothing in that basic Christian faith that's not already in scripture, yeah, right? Yep. The scripture, scripture is telling us the same story about the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and the creation and the fall and the... Um, the incarnation and his death and resurrection and all these things, it already mentions that. So there's nothing for instance, let me just put it very clearly. There's nothing that is essential to our faith and practice that is not already in scripture, but, but knowing the basic storyline of scripture that has been passed on from the beginning helps us to stay focused on the big things and have a, a basic structure uh, within re which to read scripture. But then to answer your other question, you know, there are a lot of gaps. Remember the very fact that they're going around and preaching and teaching and baptizing and doing these things. Um, that means that everybody who's reading the New Testament in that first generation has a broad, rich Christian experience already. So they're bringing to the text. Uh, the, the example I like to use in Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul's is talking about this restraining influence or whatever it is. And uh, academics are debating, what is this restrainer in second Timothy two? Well, nobody really knows for sure, but the problem is what's really frustrating is Paul says to the Thessalonians, uh, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things. So they knew <laughs> right. because he had taught it to them orally. Um, but we don't know because we weren't there. So it's one of those things where they knew, but we don't. And there are a lot of things like that where, you know, for the, the classic example, to kind of answer your question, the Lord's Supper, um, different traditions and, and various denominations and people practice it differently and believe this about it and that about it. And how frequently should we do it? But, you know, if you look at the, the early church writings and the context may not answer all your questions, but it might fill in some of those gaps so that we can see. No, this was really important. Baptism was really important. Here's how they baptized. Here's here's how they did the Lord's Supper. Here's why and how it fit in the um, the life of the community and the life of the Christian. Whereas today we sometimes devalue baptism and the Lord's Supper in our personal life as well as the life of the church because um, all we have is a few mentions of it here. We know it's kind of important, but 
We don't really know how to do it, why we're doing it sometimes, which is things that the early church knew and are reading those documents. We can kind of fill in some of those gaps. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and you'd mentioned this earlier, the er, what's the earliest writing that we have? Yeah. Um, outside the New Testament, the earliest Christian writing that we have is um, something called the Didache, which means short for the teaching or the teaching of the apostle, 12 apostles to the Gentiles is the full title of it. Um, but that comes from the first century, sometimes second half of the first century. Many scholars date it between about 50 to 70. Um, some maybe as late as, as 100, but basically still first century, which means it's overlapping with uh, with our New Testament, it becomes sort of a historical context, background um, information for interpreting that scripture. Because we, we be, do believe in interpreting scripture in light of its historical context. So that's one of those documents that provides us that early context. Yeah. Um, tell me if you think this, this kind of image works to try and understand how these things relate to each other. I heard this, I can't, so I can't take credit for it. But if we think of our faith like a three-legged stool upon which we're, we're trying to sit, and one leg is the scripture, the other, another leg is kind of our own personal experience, uh, you say, in, in the spirit, what, what God has done in our lives that has changed us and how he's encountered us and as we try and just make sense of the work of God in our in our own life. And then the third is actually this tradition and that each of these uh, each of these legs are necessary for us to to be able to sit stably. Um, I, I can't claim any personal experience to be genuinely from the spirit that goes against either the tradition and the scripture, just like I can't claim and really cling to a tradition that would go against something taught in the scripture or would, you know, violate what it is that I have seen the, the spirit do in my life and in previous generations. And I can't claim some interpretation of the scripture that would also go against the other two, that it's kind of this Trinitarian uh, relationship that the, those three things have that help support our our faith. To, tell me if you, if you, would you tweak that in any way, or do you think that's a decent way of understanding how these things relate to each other? Yeah, I, I've heard things like that before as well. Um, three or four, you know, legs that we kind of rest things on. I think from a, from just a, a practical, how we do, how we live the Christian life, how we do theology. I think that that kind of works. We have, we do want to make sure that we don't make it look like, um, scripture and tradition in our experience are all equal authorities. That's not what the image is trying to communicate, but sometimes people can interpret it that way that, you know, the, the part of the tradition <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, passed down to us along with scripture is that scripture is the final authority of matters of faith and practice. It is the only verbal written inspired um, inerrant right, right. word of God that we have. So we do want to make sure that we're, we're clear, clear on that. But as far as living the Christian life, um, I'm reading scripture. I'm reading in light of uh, good basic theology that has been handed down to us in our baptismal pledge, our baptismal confession. Being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does 
means something. We should understand what that means. And then um, living it out. We were also in baptism uh, in the early church. They were not just confessing faith in the Father, Son, and Spirit. They were also uh, basically pledging to live the Christian life. It was a baptism of repentance, turning away from sin and living a certain way. And so living that faith out. So I think it works um, in, in that sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you, and you hit on what are, where I was going to go next already. The, there is this relationship, kind of unique relationship between tradition and the scripture, because the scripture, as you pointed out earlier, kind of comes out of the tradition, right? There's this tradition mm-hmm. already being taught, already being passed down. And in, and in some cases, it's not just belief. It's actually how you do certain things. I mean, you read the Didache, right. and by you know the mid-50s or 60s, whatever it is, it, within the life of Paul, essentially, they already have, at least in that document, this is how you should take the Lord's Supper. This is what you should pray before you get baptized, make the person fast, do it in running water that's cold. If you don't have cold water, do it, you know, like they already have these actual physical practices as well. Um, and how they, how they actually do certain things, how they do ordination, how they do the Lord's Supper, right. how they do baptism. But we don't think of those as authoritative, right? We, nobody, Nobody says, well, hey, we, the scripture says the Lord's Supper is authoritative, that we need to do it. And yet in that same flow of tradition, we have, this is how you should do the Lord's Supper. But we obviously, we don't place the same, I mean, at least the Protestant understanding doesn't place the same authority on it. Other traditions do. That is, I'm thinking specifically like the, the Eastern Church. They put a much, I think, more kind of authoritative weight on it. Um, how do we, how do we, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but how do you kind of untangle that knot a little bit of the issue of authority? Because I think ultimately in, in the, the conversations that I've had with people over the years, that kind of becomes the issue is they don't, people don't want some formula of how to do something to be lorded over them as an authority. They have no problem, most people being told, hey, this is what the church is always, but don't tell me how I have to do X, Y, and Z, because maybe I, you know, because the scriptures don't tell us exactly how we should do the Lord's Supper, it just says that we should do it when we gather. Um, how do you, how do we understand those the parts of the, the tradition that are um, kind of orthodoxy, things to believe, and these propositions, and the actual, hey, this is how we actually do those things. And they're all kind of in that same stream, but we're, at least again, in the Protestant understanding, we're putting a little bit different weights of authority on those different things. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. And uh, so let's, we're, we're, you know, we've been kind of talking about baptism and Lord's Supper, and I think those are good examples, like, uh, at least good test cases. You could apply the same thing to a lot of different issues, but um, one thing you notice is um, baptism and Lord's Supper were, were very, very important in the early church. Um, 
they are commanded in scripture, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, as, that's how you make disciples. That's how John made his disciples. That's how Jesus made his disciples. We're told that in, in John chapter four. And, and that's how the church made disciples, by baptizing them. So it is commanded, but how do you actually do it? And there are about a dozen different varieties of ways of doing baptism with regard to how many dips uh, do you dip? Do you sprinkle? Do you this? How old do they have to be? What's involved? How much time before and after? And I mean, there's, and then you Lord's Supper, the same thing, right? There's dozens of different views on that. Um, what's interesting is you do actually see variety and diversity of, of practices, even in the early church. So these are not the differences that you see in our um, traditional denominations and things. Uh, that's really not new itself. So to me, that's comforting to know that there is some, there is some freedom and diversity. And I can't say my view is necessarily the only right way to do it. Even in that document, the Didache, you know, it seems to um, prefer baptism by immersion in a in a river kind of idea. Uh, but it does acknowledge that if you can't reach the ideal, then some kind of water and some kind of form right. of baptism is is good enough, right? right so right. the idea is doing it is better than doing it perfectly. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. we could use a little more of that in our right our tradition. So um so yeah I would say though um let me say put it this way I think uh Part of the discussion is by looking at the early church and how they did it, especially if you see this, this consensus, this general approach, I would say that it helps answer the question, who has the burden of truth when we are debating something? So let's say you encounter some tradition that says, well, we don't baptize. We just believe in baptism, the Holy Spirit. We don't do water baptism because it's not necessary for salvation. And we just don't really do it um, or we place a very, very low emphasis on it. Well, when you take a look at New Testament in light of the early church and the, the emphasis they placed on that as the beginning of the life of discipleship, uh, to me, in my method, in my understanding, that that's sort of the starting point. That is, I think the burden of proof now is on anyone who wants to deviate from that radically uh, or the Lord's Supper um, with bread and wine or grape juice, um, something like that. You know, the burden of proof is not on me to say bread and wine should be the, the normal elements used. The burden of proof is on the person who wants to use Coke and pizza or um, Doritos and water or something like this or, or, never practice the Lord's Supper, practice it infrequently. So those kinds of things, I would say, that's one of the functions of, of looking at the early church. But we do have to admit that some things, even in the early Christian documents, aren't clear, or the what is clear is that they reflect a diversity of opinions within certain parameters. Yeah, they're not a monolith. You know, they're not, it's not like, hey, for right. 500 years, everybody thought the exact same thing, and then it started to splinter over time until you get the yeah. chaos that we have now. Um, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Would you say, I'm just curious, would you say um, there is any kind of, uh, not like scriptural authority, but kind of the tradition authority that you were just alluding to about burden of proof as it relates to the frequency in which we should take the Lord's Supper and in the issue of 
just because I get asked this question a lot, uh, age of baptism. I mean, those are two kind of like mm-hmm. of the big things of how often should we take it and essentially creedal or pedal baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's ask, let's actually start with, with the, the Lord's supper then thing, even though normally a person would be baptized first, but um, yeah, the, the, pretty much there's no dispute among historians of, of um, the early church and, and even historians of Christian worship is that um, the Lord's Supper was observed every Sunday when the church gathered. Um, there was preaching and, and prayer and singing and the Lord's Supper. There was no such thing as really a, a gathering of the church apart from an observance of the what they call Eucharistia or the Thanksgiving with the bread and the wine. So um, and that, I mean, that has been the case all the way, even in the Reformation, the reformers knew that was the case. Calvin clearly admitted this was the, the normal practice. So once a week yeah. observance, and there's been a bit of a resurgence of that, even in our pre-churches that had gotten used to monthly or quarterly, um, simply because of the, the overwhelming evidence that this is the way the church had done it. Yeah. Um, seems to be the way the church, you know, in the New Testament itself, there's nothing that says, by the way, you must do this weekly. but once you kind of know what the church was doing and read these passages that talk about the Lord's Supper, um, it, it, that's one of those examples where reading the, these texts in their actual historical context and not in our 21st century context um, does kind of change the flavor of things a little bit. So, so that, that would be the case. And then now the question is, does that mean we must do it? Well, going back to my my methodological kind of position is, well, the burden of proof to me is on the person who wants to deviate from what was the universal practice of the church established by the apostles. So give me a good reason why you shouldn't or can't, and then we can talk. But I think the starting point is that's what we should probably be doing unless we have a good reason. Um, And with regard to baptism, uh, you know, that's the earliest in New Testament clear evidence is a kind of a credo baptism, a believer's baptism by immersion. It was sort of the norm. But, you know, as a patristic, and that's my practice of my my free church kind of tradition. But, um, you know, by the end of the first century, maybe beginning of the second century, in some places, uh, the church churches began to to baptize infants and it, it it was kind of a for 100 years or so a bit bit controversial whether we should be doing that or not uh and but by the third century late second third century in some places it was accepted pretty as pretty normal uh but not universal and um it wasn't i saw a tweet the other day that said basically it's a sin to not baptize your babies well for four or five hundred years that the church didn't consider that they parents sometimes brought their children for baptism. Sometimes they waited until they were older so they could, you know, sow their wild oats, I guess, make sure that they were actually serious about the faith. So it was not even once it started a universal practice uh, consistently. So that's just kind of the hard facts. History is sometimes very frustrating and annoying. I wish there was a universal clear position, but it does seem like the earliest clear Sure. for which we have clear evidence is would be credo baptism or a baptism as a profession of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you, how do we bring into um, this conversation? Cause you can't, 
you start talking about the early church, the importance of their writings. Uh, you know, they're, they're the ones, like you said earlier, formed uh, the scriptures. They're the ones who collected those and said, this one's in, this one's out. Yes to this one, no to that one. Uh, they're the one who, ones who wrote the creeds that we all confess or grew up confessing that set the boundaries of what orthodoxy is, the, the rules like, hey, if you're outside of this, you're not, you're not one of us kind of a deal. Um, but you go far enough down that line, and, and this is getting, I, I understand, kind of out of the uh, patristic period as you defined it. How do mm-hmm. we then, as modern-day Protestants, who are two divorces removed, kind of, from, from the original, how do we, and, and I, I'm sure a lot of people are probably like two divorces, I thought there was only one Reformation. Well, there was a split before that, right, by about 500 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, how does that play into all of it? And how do we still see, because you see different traditions argue mm-hmm. about who's connected to the early church. You yeah. know, the Orthodox are very adamant that they are the ones who have continued to be faithful, that the, you know, the, the Bishop of Rome is the one who left and started his own thing and blah, 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 blah. Right. The Catholics have their own view of the of that. And then the Protestants just kind of show up 500 years later and are like, well, Hey, we just didn't like what the Catholics are doing. So we're, and, and you hear a lot of this language in some traditions of, we want to regain what the early church had. We want to, mm-hmm. we want to retrieve the book of acts. We want to see and live like they did in the book of acts. And there's, there's this desire to be connected, but how do we, how do we take into account our connection in light of kind of the whole, the whole timeline of what has happened and, um, Mm -hmm. and everything that has taken place. That's kind of ugly and brutal and uh, messy and hard to figure out. Uh, But how do we, how do we see ourselves as modern day Protestants uh, in America connected to that story? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really tough, but um, it's good to think of it, first of all, in terms of, yes, we are connected to the story. Nobody can say, well, uh, I'm not a Catholic or I'm not Orthodox. I'm not Protestant. I'm not connected to any of that. I am, you know, a New Testament Christian. Well, the very fact that you can open up the New Testament and see what the, that was like is a result of this New Testament being faithfully passed down, not just in the patristic period but all the way through and being translated and being you know so so we are benefiting from this long long history and we are you know our dna uh some of our features a lot of what we do is things that have been passed down to us it's not it's self-evidently the case even when we open the bible and say we're going to be like the bible we're coming at it with even unconscious presuppositions and things that we've received or when we re- reject tradition. Well, I'm going to throw out the tradition and I'm just going to do it this way. Well, the, the, even the nature of our reaction, our anti-tradition reaction is a reaction to a certain tradition. Yeah. 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 May actually kind of care, right. It's you're yeah. reacting a certain way to a certain tradition and it affects what that reaction even looks like. So, um, so you really can't, it is a myth that you can sort of step outside this, the history and the tradition and just, be objective and look at things purely objectively. So I think it's better to become aware, become aware of 
the good that the patristic period has has passed down also some bad it, it not everything that they said is right not everything that i say is true and right i mean um i don't know what if i if i knew what it was i'd stop saying it but i'm right, pretty right. sure i'm wrong about certain things i, mean, I knew I there was some issue with that. some of my papers so every that generation I has it <laughs> I knew I I had I had suspicions that I think Spiegel's wrong on this one. Yeah, maybe your exactly. TA. Yeah, it probably was. I'm gonna yeah, blame someone go. else whenever I can. <laughs> no, so I think I think it's important to to approach approach it with some humility, uh, with grace. I call it the hermeneutic of grace. Let's let's say, look, they're not perfect here. They've made some big mistakes here, but they do contribute certain things to us. Or even when. Um, in the medieval period, there are some dark things going on in the medieval period. It's pretty bad things that can, at least we can learn not to do that. You know, we can be, right, right. they can become a bad example that we don't follow. So I think the whole history is valuable and we need to own it. Um, we are, uh, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. These are our ancestors, but you're right. We are, uh, oftentimes two or more divorces away from, from the early church, the problem with anybody claiming that they have a direct line back to the New Testament or direct line through a certain succession or something is the argument becomes very circular very quickly. Um, and they, they're going to end up having to appeal to something um, other than um, this pristine tradition that's been passed down or um, just the New Testament itself, because guess what? The dozens or so different churches and denominations that claim that they're just basing their theology practices on the Bible alone, lo and behold, they don't agree with each other. Right, right, right. So that it's clear that they're not basing it just on the Bible alone or that the Bible doesn't mean anything. We can't say that. So I would say let's be discerning. Um, read widely, but read wisely, I like to say. So, um, and and I, I, if you read the patristic um, writings and the church fathers and and you feel motivated as a as an evangelical Christian to totally abandon your faith or totally abandon your evangelicalism. You've read them wrongly, because um, reading church history should not make you a former evangelical. It should make you a better evangelical, where you have a better grasp of the central truths of the faith, not um, not trashing uh, the things. That you were taught and and especially younger people and i'll leave you with this uh this comment but um the younger people in their 20s or so that are kind of in this phase of deconstructing their faith um you know not everything that you're that the church you grew up in taught you is wrong and not everything that they taught you is right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you do have to take some time and be very careful and cautious as you're thinking through these things and use church history and the writings of the fathers, et cetera, as, as sort of a foundation as sort of a guide to help you do that responsibly. Yeah. Uh, one last question, because you just mentioned, if you're going to start reading uh, the patristics, where, where would you give us one or two uh, authors or works that you would say, Hey, you have, you know, you thought patristics was a skin disease before this, podcast episode and now you want to go and read them where where should they start um and what would be to be helpful for them yeah it's a good, good question and uh, i'm going to just hold this up the the apostolic fathers is a good collection um yeah. the that 
it's not all of the church fathers that would fill long shelves of books. Um, right. But the apostolic fathers, and you can get multiple different translations and, and things. Some of them, old translations are available right online for free. They're in the public domain. Um, and that would include books like the Didache that we mentioned from the first century, uh, the writings of Ignatius of Antioch from the early second century, Polycarp, um, couple of these people were disciples of the apostle john themselves uh first clement um some of these things so these are like 50 to about 150 that collection of writings is a good place to start sure and once you go from there you can kind of graduate to other other writings from the second century and i would say read it read them chronologically justin martyr um irenaeus of leon is great yeah um, that's your guy isn't you know it? they're dealing with yeah I, I like irenaeus a lot i'm just yeah. gonna be admit it but yeah. um Basically, you know, these second century writings um, would be a good place to start. But starting with the Apostolic Fathers will give you a little bit of a context. Sure. Okay. Now I actually have one more question because I'm a no, sports, that's okay. I, I'm a sports nut, and one thing that me and my friends and my brother always do is we're always coming up with random, what we call Mount Rushmores, right? So you 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 can only have four. It's the Mount Rushmore of you know, whatever. My brother and I, not that long ago, we were talking about the Mount Rushmore of uh, athletes that we think are actually aliens who have invaded because they're just so freaky, whatever. So we just come up with random, random things. So give me your, give me your Mount Rushmore of patristic authors, and then we'll go with that. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with the Didache okay. in the first century. Second century, I'm going to say Irenaeus of Lyon. Yep. I'm going to give you one for each century. Third century. Oh, all right. All right. I'm going to say, oh boy. Can I skip? I'm going to say four. Um, let's skip. Yeah, the yeah third you do century. whatever you want. Too yeah, much going on there. Fourth century, Athanasius. Yep. Athanasius of Alexandria. And, and then um, fifth century, we're going to cap it off with Augustine uh, of Hippo. So, or Augustine. Yeah, uh, whichever you prefer. Sure. But I think those four um, and reading just samples of those will give you a broad sweep. And you also get to see continuity, things that kind of they're all saying the same. But you also get to see where do things do get a little bit messy sometimes in the course of those four yeah. centuries. Awesome. I love it. I'm always up for a, Mount, a new Mount Rushmore. Um, if people want to find you online, <laughs> your books, Twitter, whatever, where can they find you? Yeah, so Twitter, I'm, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, it's just at Svigel, S-V-I-G-E-L. Um, but you can Google my name or go to Amazon. Any of my books, things are on Amazon. Uh, there aren't a lot of Svigels in the world. So, uh, you know, just type that in. You'll be able to find me very, very easily. Yeah, yeah. You get the sing the, the last name Twitter handle, which is like just pure gold. Exactly. Just your last name. Yeah, it's amazing. So, um, Dr. Svigel, Thank you so much for taking time out to do this before the, the semester starts down there in Dallas. Uh, this was really, really helpful. And I think a great conversation. Hopefully, hopefully more people will go and read some of the patristics and not look it up on WebMD uh, when they have something right. going on with their skin. <laughs> exactly. That's great. I love that. I love that. So, uh, all right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah.